Before we get started, let's go ahead and go into a time of prayer, and then I'm going to ask for you to be seated. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much, Father, that we don't have to wait to worship you. Lord, we can uh, be in your presence right here, right now. Lord, I, I believe we felt your presence already. Lord, I'm praying right now that you would be with me as I, I present the word this morning. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, Lord, you would humble me, Lord, that I would be a vessel to be used by you. And Lord, I'm praying right now that you would go ahead and prepare hearts and minds to receive what you would have to give this morning. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You go ahead and have a seat. Have a seat, everybody. It's good to see you. <clears throat> good to see you. Uh, I, I see some of y'all didn't make it to the beach. Um, that's fine. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I uh, wouldn't want you to be anywhere else but here. Uh, today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21, a very obscure corner of scripture that not many people are aware of um, that has to deal with giants. Uh, that's a really cool thing. I don't know about you, but giants have always seemed to captivate the imagination. Uh, it, it, we have blockbuster movies that have made millions off the idea of giants. You have things like Star Wars. Our Lord of the Rings, our Harry Potter, Godzilla, our, our King Kong, these, these movies that have giant elements and giant creatures. Uh, it just something about giants just kind of really captivates us. And then uh, you have the, the, the world's uh, tallest man who's ever been empirically measured, somebody who is in the Guinness Book of Records. Uh, this man was named Robert Wadlow. Uh, actually, I have a picture of Mr. Robert Wadlow. Uh, Mr. Robert Wadlow stood at 8 foot 11.2 inches tall, the tallest documented man ever to live. Um, there could have been taller, but he's the tallest documented one. Uh, just a little, sh- little shy of being 9 foot tall. That's a big man. That's a big man. Uh, the tallest man alive today is only 8 foot 2 inches tall. So, I mean, a, a short guy compared to him. And how many of y'all remember a famous wrestler from the 70s and 80s? A Frenchman by the name of Andre the Giant. Y'all, y'all know Andre. He was an ugly woolly booger, but uh, he was a big man. But in height-wise, was short compared to these other guys. Seven foot four inches tall, but weighed 540 pounds. That's a big man, too. All right, That's a big man. But then you have, uh, you have uh, people in Scripture. If I was to leave here today and go down to Brandon Iron or Walmart or any one of these stores, I guarantee you I could go tap on somebody's shoulder and say, could you tell me the name of the, uh, of the giant that David killed? You know what they would tell me? Goliath. We all know about David killing Goliath. That's a famous part of Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at another time where David encountered four more giants. This is something we don't often talk about, something we don't even know about, really. Uh, I was talking to some others. They're asking me what I was going to be preaching about, and I told them, they're like, say what? I said, yeah. David fought four more giants before he died. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And looking in verse 15, this is, this is what it reads. He says, Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. And Ishbinabab, which was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass and weight, being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more, thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel." 
In 18 it says, And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushethite slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jeroboam, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had on every hand six fingers, and on every foot six toes. I bet he was something to look at. Four and twenty in number, and he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shemaiah, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. It's interesting that David's life would be bookend with giants. He comes into fame and to recognition by killing that great giant Goliath. And now towards the end of his life, he's fighting giants again. But there's a difference this time. When, 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 when David killed Goliath, he was a young man. He was a lot younger. Now he's probably around his 60s fighting giants still. I, I don't know about you, but I have, I have recognized that uh, as I get older, bouncing back is not as easy as it used to be. I don't know if I can testify to that or not. I know I'm only 30, about to be 36. I know some of y'all are like, you're just a youngin'. Listen, I still feel it, okay? I feel it. And, and I know what it was like being a kid, being able to climb a tree all the way to the top and fall out and bounce and get back up and dust yourself off and do it again. I mean, it was nothing. Now, all of a sudden, I sneeze too hard, my back is out. Ask me how I know. Ask me how I know. How many of y'all remember when you was a kid, you would go outside and play all day long? We used to have a street light at the end of our street. And when that street light kicked on, we knew it was time to come home. And so we'd leave early in the morning. We'd play outside all day long. We'd come inside just very quickly to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And we'd go right back outside and drink from a water hose. You had to make sure to run it a little bit first because that, that water's about 212 degrees going right down your throat. Ask me how I know. All right. So you know what it was like being a kid, being able to run and play and do all that stuff all day long. And then you get older. And you're sitting at the edge of your bed trying to psych yourself up to bend over and put your shoes on. Yeah. You know. You know. Here's the thing. David's not a young man anymore. And these battles are beginning to wear on him. And it's beginning to take a toll on David, David's body and David's energy and David's endurance. And he's just not able to bounce back like he used to. In verse 15, look what it says in verse 15. It says, Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. You know what that means? He got tired. He was tired. And this, this fighting is starting to take a toll on David. I mean, think about David's life in general. He was thrust into national spotlight when he killed that Goliath. All of a sudden, now he's also God's anointed king of Israel. So now he has to deal with that as well. And, and now he goes from being a simple shepherd boy to everybody knowing who David is. And then on top of that, he has to deal with old Psycho Saul. Psycho Saul was probably one of the most bipolar figures in all of Scripture. One moment he loves David. The next moment he hates David. One moment he's David's friend. The next moment he's trying to kill David. And then he keeps on going, 47 years of life, here he is, he's on top of his roof, and he looks around, and he sees old Bathsheba. Yeah. Instead of looking away, he looks a little longer. Yeah. 
and he invites her over and he commits adultery with her and she ends up having, uh, getting pregnant. And so to try to cover that up, he ends up killing her husband. So in one moment, he commits adultery and murder. And the weight of that sin absolutely crushed David. He lost that son in the process. I imagine that would take a lot out of you. I imagine that would hurt. And then his own son, Absalom, his general and his son, tries to take over the throne and begins to turn against David. And the whole family begins to just implode on itself. And he loves his son, but he loves Israel. And he's in this dilemma because he doesn't want to see his son killed, but he doesn't want to see Israel go to, go to waste either. And so here he is in this dilemma with his own child. His battles are still not over. Here he is now in his 60s, and he's still fighting battles. I don't know, but maybe somebody here in this room today, somebody watching online or somebody there at Fairview, maybe you can relate to this and say, man, it feels like my thumbprints are all over this because it feels like when I thought my giant fighting days were over, the giants just kept on coming. When I thought that I just had one more mountain to climb, there was just another mountain right behind it. I don't know, but maybe somebody in here can relate to that because I sure can. I sure can. I, I feel, I feel it. I, I wonder if somebody in here thought, man, if I could just get through this difficult patch in my marriage, things would get so much better. But then the giants just kept on coming. Or maybe if we just got that raise or that promotion or that bonus and we was able to pay down some bills, things would get a little bit lighter. And all of a sudden, maybe everything would get a little bit easier. But all of a sudden you realize the giants just kept on coming. Maybe you thought, if I could just get over the loss of my child, the loss of my son, the loss of my, 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 my father, my mother, my fill-in-the-blank. If I just had a little bit more time, after I got through that process, that grieving process, things would get easier, but you find out the giants just keep on coming. Come on. I'm guilty of this. Everybody, anybody ever said this before? If I can just get through this week. If I, if I could just, th- through this week, everything would get so much better. Anybody ever said that? Yeah. And guess what happens? The giants keep coming. There are so many times where we think, is it over yet? Is it over yet? Verses 18 through 20, you keep seeing a repetitive phrase take place. It came to pass. There was again a battle. Verse 19, and there was again a battle. And verse 20, and there was yet a battle over and over and over. A battle, a battle, a battle. The word Philistine in 2 Samuel is used over 200 times. Just in 2 Samuel, the word Philistine. That was the enemy of Israel. It seems like once you got rid of them, they're like roaches. They come out of the cracks again, and there they are. And so what do we do when the battles keep coming? If I had a a title for the message today, I guess that would be it. When the giants keep coming. So what do you do when the giants keep coming? How do you fight them? What do you do? Well, first of all, this is going to be a very, very simple message. The first thing you do is you've got to prepare for battle. Prepare for battle. What does it mean to prepare for battle? Well, we've got to know our enemy and his tactics. And one thing we know about our enemy is that he doesn't fight fair. Our enemy does not fight fair. And, and, and there's a difference between battles that happen from the enemy and from just being uh, in spiritual warfare and just being in a broken world. Because that's the reality. We live in a broken world full of broken people. So we're going to have problems. OK, but there's something else completely different when you self-inflict your own battles. How many of y'all caused your own problems before? Yeah. OK. 
I, I can't help you with that, okay? I can't help you with the self-inflicted problems. It's like the man who, whose wife came to him to celebrate the anniversary. They've been married for a while, and she says, Honey, this year is a special year, and so this year I want something shiny that goes from, 100, from 0 to 150 in under 3 seconds. And so he bought her a bathroom scale. Listen, <laughs> that right there is a self-inflicted battle <laughs> that I cannot help you with. <laughs> But there are some spiritual ones you're going to come in contact with. You're going to need some help. Wouldn't it be good if the Christian life was just one battle and after that everything went easy? Wouldn't it have been good if Moses crossed that Red Sea with Pharaoh's army right behind him and that, that, that sea went down and swallowed up that army and then from then on out was easy peasy, lemon squeezy for Moses? That would have been good. Or how about Elijah on Mount Carmel? As he's standing before the prophets of Baal and he calls down fire to consume those sacrifices. And after that moment, after God showed his might and his strength, Elijah walks off that mountain, never has a problem again. That would have been good, but that's not the reality, is it? We haven't been guaranteed an easy life. Matter of fact, John chapter 16, verse 33. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is speaking. He says, these things I have spoken unto you that you might have peace in the world. What does it say? You shall have That's problems. In this world, you're going to have issues. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have struggles. He didn't bury the lead. He didn't hide it. He didn't sugarcoat it. He's saying, listen to me. You're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. But then he gives us a promise afterwards. He says, I have overcome the world. So the enemy doesn't fight fair. How does he not fight fair? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, you get a kind of an insight look of who the enemy is. Revelation 12, 10, this is what it says. He says, um, in the last half of that, he says, For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. The accuser of our brethren is cast down. He's cast to this earth, which accused them before our God day and night. He's an accuser. What does that mean? It means that when the giants keep coming and the enemy keeps coming and the battles keep raging and you get weak and you get faint and you get your eyes kicked in every now and then, the enemy don't care. He comes up on your shoulder and begins to witness or begins to whisper these malevolent, malignant lies in your ear. And he says things like this. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be having these giants. Listen, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be having these kinds of problems. He begins to whisper things like, God doesn't care about you. Nobody cares about you. If you were really saved, you wouldn't be having these kinds of struggles. It's kind of like Job's friends. Remember Job kept fighting battle after battle. He lost his health, lost his wealth, lost his family, lost everything. And then Bildad the Shuhite, his friend, comes up to Job and says, Job, I know what's going on, Job. Here's the problem. Job, the reason you're doing, going through this is because you've messed up. And God is dealing with you because you're a wicked man, Job. That's what, that's what Bildad tells his own friend. With friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And so here's Job, literally at his lowest point in his life, and then here comes the whispers. It's because you've messed up. It's because you're a bad person. It's because you did that thing. It's because God doesn't love you. When Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, it is at that moment when Jesus was physically at his weakest, physically at his hungriest, and at that moment is when, this, when Satan, the devil himself, shows up and tells Jesus, hey, listen, if, if you are the Son of God, then do this one thing. Turn this stone into bread. Why did he wait till he was at his weakest? Because he was most vulnerable. 
Do you think the enemy is going to come to you when you're at your spiritually strongest? When things are, are going good for you? That's not when the enemy comes. The enemy waits for his opportunity. The Bible tells us he's like a lion. A lion is an advantage killer. He's going to wait for the weak ones, the young ones, the, the hurt ones before he attacks. And he's waiting for you. And when you're weak, when you're hurt, when you're struggling is when he attacks. And he's going to jump up on your shoulder and ma- start whispering things in your ear, making you believe in things that aren't true. Why? Because the enemy doesn't fight fair. And if we're going to prepare for battle, we've got to know his tactics, that he is the man who does not fight fair. So David had these giants just one more time. And he near about gets his clock cleaned. Look at verse 17. Actually, go back to verse 16. And Ishbibinob, which was one of the sons of the giant. I've practiced that word a lot, by the way. If you're, if you're impressed, it's because I've been practicing that word a lot. All right. So Ishbibinob, which is one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight. He being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David, basically saying he almost killed David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, succored him, came along and helped him, and smote the Philistine and killed him. There was a moment that David almost lost his life, and, and Abishai came to the rescue. Then it, it says, Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. He's saying, David, you are way too important. You are the light of Israel. He weren't, he, David was not just the political leader of Israel. He was the spiritual leader of Israel. And he's saying, David, if you go down, Israel's going down too. we got to protect you. We have to come alongside. You cannot fight this alone, David. You cannot, can, can, uh, you cannot fight this alone, child of God. Some of us pretend to be islands to ourselves. We don't want anybody else to know what's going on in our lives. We don't want, to know what's, we don't want people into the places that we're battling and struggling with. Listen, can I tell you, you can't go this alone. And so Abishai comes across David and says, David, we're going to fight with you. Now, I want to do something parenthetically. That's a $5 word. I want to say something parenthetically. David was a spiritual leader, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but spiritual leaders are under attack all the time. Daily, they're under attack. I don't know if you've kept up with this, but the Voice of the Martyrs has reported from 2000 to 2009, there are 1.6 million Christians killed. From 2010 to 2019, there were another uh, uh, 800,000 Christians killed. So from 2000 to 2019, there were 2.4, Christians, 2.4 million Christians killed for their faith. That's not including those who have been displaced, those who have been beaten, those who have been falsely imprisoned, those who have had their houses and their churches burned down, those who have had their families separated from them. There is spiritual battle taking place every day. I don't know if you're aware of this, but even here at Temple Baptist Church, your spiritual leaders are coming under attack on a regular basis. And the best thing you could do as a church is to come alongside of them and say, hey, I want to support you. I want to encourage you. I want to pray for you because I see if you go down, we go down. I don't know if you're aware of this either, but most of the phone calls, text messages, and emails that we get are not encouraging. <laughs> I don't, I mean, newsflash, I don't know if y'all are aware of that or not. Sometimes just sending an appreciative email would be the world to some. Just sending a thankful, hey, we appreciate you text message would be the world to some. Because every day your spiritual leaders are under attack. Out there at Fairview, I know Tim Barbie has been leading that church well, and you need to pray for him and lift him up well. Come alongside of him and all those other leaders out there as well. So our enemy doesn't fight fair. 
We've got to know that. The second thing we've got to understand is that we fight on the enemy's territory. We're on the enemy's territory. If you notice, there's two places that these battles take place. It tells us in verse 18, there's a place called Gob. And in verse 20, there's a place called Gath. Gob and Gath. That sounds like ugly places. This is actually, these, are, these places were actually in Philistine territory. These two cities were west of Jerusalem. And so when they went to go fight the enemy, they went to the enemy's territory. Can I tell you that the scripture tells us very clearly that where we fight our spiritual battles is in the enemy's territory. In John chapter 12, verse 31, John 12, 31, it says Satan is the ruler of this world. Because the ruler of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In other words, this world that we currently live on and inhabit is, a, is, is the enemy's territory. And every battle we fight is going to be on his territory. But can I encourage you just for a second? I want to let you know that if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, every game that you play is going to be a home game. It doesn't matter if this is his territory or not. If you have Christ, you always have the advantage. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 31, this is what Paul says. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So even though we may be fighting on the enemy's territory, and even though he may be a cheater, and even though he may not fight fair, we still have the advantage. So we need to prepare for battle. The second thing we need to do is protect our legacy. Now, this is something you might be thinking, like, how does this fit in? Let me, let me give you an example of how this fits in. There are four men that came to David's aid. Abishai, Sibachai, Elhanan, and Jonathan. Four men that had been with David most of his life. I wonder, just a question, I wonder, how did they learn how to fight a giant? I wonder who they watched, who they learned from. Who instructed them? Who taught them how to fight a giant? How did they come across the ability to fight a giant and win? I wonder who they watched and learned from. You want to give me a guess? David. People are watching how you fight your giants. People are watching how you fight your giants. Your kids. Your kids are watching you how you fight your giants. Do they see you bend down in prayer? Do they see you take out God's word to search the scriptures for what's affecting you at that moment? How are you protecting your legacy to prepare the next generation of giant fighters? Does your co-workers, how do they see you handle stress at work? Do you bow down in prayer and ask God to help you and you turn on some worship music? Or you jump in with the gossip and the slander too? How you fight your giants matters. And people are watching how you fight your giants. How does your family hear you talk about your giants? Do you brag about the goodness and greatness of God and how he's the giant slayer? Or do you feel overwhelmed and defeated? So you need to protect your legacy. David's faith and victories were in life were not just meaningful for himself. His, his victories and his faith, they were not just meaningful for himself, but for those that were watching him. People are you, If you are a Christian, you live in a fishbowl. And this world is watching how you react every day. This cancel culture has gotten out of hand, and they're waiting to see how you react. That's why you see all these big Christian companies coming under attack, because they want to see how far they can push. That's why schools have come under attack, because they want to see how far they can push. Christians, we have to be ready to fight these giants, but we have to fight them well. There is a woman 
by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. You might be familiar with this lady. She was a missionary. Um, in her young age, she was very, very intelligent, very intelligent. Uh, was a master of classical languages, new languages like Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin. And so she partnered up with Wycliffe Bible translators. And what she was going to do was go to the people of Ecuador to translate the New Testament into their language. Now, she was brilliant. She could have went to any prestigious university and been a very, very qualified professor, but she decided to give her life to the people of Ecuador. And, and she met a man named Jim Elliott. She got engaged to Jim Elliott, and they got shipped off to Ecuador together. He was also a, a Wycliffe Bible translator, and they both went to different areas of, of, of Ecuador on opposite sides of the mountain. For three years, they didn't see each other. That's a giant. The love of your life, you never see him for three years. That's a giant. Well, eventually they get together and they marry. They get married and they have a little baby named Valerie. A precious little family. Now, Jim Elliott and four other translators were trying to reach a tribal group called the Alca Indians. And so they're they're there in Ecuador. And on a riverbed in Ecuador, Jim Elliott and his four partners were speared to death. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Roger Adirian, and Pete Fleming lost their lives that day trying to reach an unreached people group. Now, they had weapons, but Jim Elliott, this is what he says. He says, we know where we're going, and, they know, and we know where they're going when they die. In other words, we know we're going to heaven, and we know they're going to hell. And so instead of pulling out their weapons, they willingly let them kill them. He was famous for quoting the very famous phrase, He is no fool who gives up everything he cannot keep to gain everything he cannot lose. Yeah. All right, but for, for Elizabeth Elliot, this is giant number two because now she has a baby who will never know her father. So then she moves back to the States and she goes to Cor- Gordon Cornwell College, Divinity School, and, and she writes a very famous book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it called Through, Gla- uh, Through Gates of Splendor. It was a testimony about her husband, Jim Elliot. And it shook the Christian world. She became a professor and she ends up marrying another professor. And while she was married to him, he gets diagnosed with cancer. And then she watches her second husband slowly die from cancer, giant number three. Then she goes and she gets married again. She starts an international radio program to edify and encourage Christian believers all over the world. And in in her later life, she gets diagnosed with dementia. The number one asset she had was her brain, her mind, her thinking ability, and it was taken from her. Giant number four. And yet the reason we remember Elizabeth Elliot is not because her life was smooth, because her life didn't have any barriers and obstacles and it was unhindered. The reason we remember somebody like Elizabeth Elliot is because in the face of giant after giant, she maintained a triumphant Christian testimony. And she fought those giants well. And she defeated giant after giant after giant. And now she belongs to the ages because she was a giant slayer who also knew the giant slayer. Maybe you're in this place and you believe that we shouldn't have problems like this. If you're a believer in Christ, shouldn't things be easier? Let me backtrack to David. David had one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16... 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it says, This is a promise from God, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. And then he says, Thy throne shall be established 
forever. This is a promise to God saying, King David, listen, your throne is going to be an everlasting throne. That's a pretty great promise. This is the same David who faced these giants. The same David that wrote the 23rd Psalm about the Good Shepherd. The same David in which the city of Jerusalem is named after the city of David. The same David who was a direct blood ancestor of the Messiah. If you were to take a DNA swab of Jesus' mouth and take it to Ancestry.com, it'll come all the way back to David. And yet David was not exempt from battle after battle and problem after problem. You might be thinking, well, that's pretty terrible news, Brother Andrew. (laughs) Like, there's been no good news so far. Well, I have to give you the bad news before I can set up the stage for the good news. Because you're not going to appreciate the good news until you know what the bad news is. Bad news is we're going to have battles, we're going to have problems, we're going to have obstacles, we're going to have giants. Here's the good news. God is with us. Also, God prearranges people to come beside you in a time of your greatest giants. Here's some truths we can learn about the battle. Number one, there's the provision of God. The provision of God. God provides people. God will provide people in your life to help you fight. All throughout Scripture, you see this happening. You see Joshua partnered up with Moses going up Mount Sinai. You see, you see Elijah, uh, Elisha shadowing Elijah. You see Ruth who wouldn't leave her mother-in-law's side. You might be thinking, what's the big deal about this? Well, because eventually Joshua took over for Moses. Eventually, Elisha got Elijah's mantle and a double portion of his anointing. And eventually, Ruth got a second chance at love by marrying Boaz, which then they had a baby named Obed, who had a baby named Jesse, who eventually had a son named David, who then through his lineage had Jesus. God is all about putting people in your life to appear when you need them the most. Here's the thing. Right off the bat, you see there was, there was a, a giant And a man named Abishai came along and killed this giant because he about killed David. Abishai was a man who was with David from the very beginning, a very trusted soldier, a very trusted ally. His name means gift. Every time you see Abishai, this dude's a bad dude. He would cut you in a heartbeat. He don't care who you are. He would cut you in a heartbeat. Every time you see Abishai, he's coming to war, leaving war, or in a war. He's just a fighter. Matter of fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 9, there is a man that comes out on the streets against David and his army. And, and Absalom is trying to kill David at this time. And this man comes out there and he says, Absalom's going to get you. He's going to kill you. You're a bloody man, David. Your throne is over. He's just talking smack. And Abishai, this is what Abishai says. He says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. Okay. Abishai will cut you. <laughs> He's a thug. He don't care. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 18, Abishai is credited with killing 300 Philistine soldiers by himself. That's a pretty big deal. I'm sure many of you, we, we just gave a poll and we said, does anybody have a testimony about how, how God put somebody in your life at the right moment, the right time? I'm sure we can go around this room and go testimony after testimony after testimony of how God provided somebody at the right moment, at the right time for a special thing. Before I came to Temple, I was a, bi- a bivocational youth pastor. I worked at a small church in Panama City. I was full time with ADT security. I put in security alarms full time. And I was struggling. Not financially, I was doing well financially, but I was struggling in my calling because I just come from two very difficult ministries back to back. And I was beginning to wonder, is God done with me? Is my calling over? Is this, is, am I finished? What's going on? I was struggling. I was struggling big time. 
I didn't know where my place was in life. I, I just thought, well, maybe it's time for me to resign from this church because I was beginning to feel like a square peg in a round hole at this church. It was a good church, good people, loving people, but I just didn't feel like I fit there. And I began to wonder if God was done with me yet. And then all of a sudden, I get a text message from this person I never talked to. I'd see him occasionally at family get-togethers. Occasionally at family get-togethers, but we didn't really talk very much. Out of the blue, I get a text message that says, Are you interested in being a youth pastor? Our, our church needs a student pastor. I said, Possibly. And he said, Well, we need a resume. I said, Well, okay, I'll send a resume over. Now here I've been at Temple for six, almost six years. All because of, of a man. Now, I, I, I want to say his name, but he's going to get a big head and think it's all about him, but it's not. <laughs> No, I'll tell you who, it's Josh Stansel. Josh Stansel, the children's pastor here, reached out to me out of the blue. Like I said, we've never talked in text message form before. Out of the blue, he sends me a message. He didn't realize at that moment I was fighting a giant. He didn't realize at that moment I was fighting a giant of, of, of confusion and a giant of discouragement. But he thought of me. And he sent me a text message. And now I've been at a church that has been the most rewarding place I've ever been. I'm sure of my calling. I've grown in my spiritual walk. This place has been a blessing to me. And it's all because God prearranged somebody in my life to be there at the right moment, at the right time. I don't know if anybody has a testimony like that or not. But then there is another man that fought a giant. Giant number two, there came a, a giant. And this man named Sibachai the Hushathite. I practiced that one too. But Sibachai the Hushathite. Came out to fight this giant. Now, Husathite basically means he's a non-Jewish person. He's a mysterious man. He's from somewhere probably like Turkey. And, and so this, this, this man, a stranger from another land, comes out and fights and kills a giant for David. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I can believe and I can testify that God will sometimes bring people into your life from the strangest situations. And the strangest places, people maybe you've never even met before will show up and do the most gracious things to help you slay a giant in your most needed time. Anybody can testify to that? I remember about 10 plus years ago, my Paul was dying from cancer. This is my mom's dad. And I grew up, I, I loved my Paul. He was a good old boy. He taught me how to go squirrel hunting and, and he'd take me bowling. He was on a bowling league. And so he'd rent a lane, a couple of lanes away from him while he was bowling. I'd be over there bowling too. And, uh, and that's why I, that's I grew up. Every weekend he had a chance. I was over at Paul Paul's house. And, and he, taught me all the kind, he taught me how to go golfing. We used to go to driving range. We used to throw football and baseball and all kind of stuff. I loved it. And then, then he would give me a two by four with a bunch of nails. He says, Andrew, I need you to go hammer these nails in this two-by-four. I said, yes, sir, Paul Paul. And I'd take off in the yard, and I'd be out there an hour and a half nailing nails into a two-by-four, thinking I was helping him out. And then I look back on it, and I realize he's just trying to get away from me. <laughs> this two-by-four had 300 nails in it. I didn't need it for nothing. But I'm out there just hammering away. I love my Paul Paul. Then I got married and I went off to college and I graduated and I became more and more concerned about my Pawpaw's spiritual life because I realized he had a rough upbringing. He was, he was raised up in an orphanage, him and his sisters. And then when he was aged out enough, he, he joined the Air Force and then he was in a plane crash and then he was discharged from the military. He had a rough life. And he was, he was curious about Christianity, but he wasn't committed yet. He, he still had a lot of questions. And so me and him would sit, sit down and talk about it a lot and but I just, I could never break through. And then he got the diagnosis of cancer. And he's a stubborn man. You know, I don't know about you, but you might know some stubborn people where they say, we can treat it. And he's like, I don't want treatment. 
He's like, I just, I just want to be done with it. And so as he started getting weaker and weaker and weaker, I remember praying and praying hard, God, I just, please save my pawpaw. This was like a giant in my life. Because I love my pawpaw and I saw him dying and I knew it was going to be any moment. And yet I didn't know if he knew the Lord and it was scaring me and it was terrifying. And, and I was praying, God, please save my pawpaw. And then out of nowhere, his, his neighbor went to her church and that Sunday morning at church told her Sunday school teacher and her Sunday school class about my pawpaw. Everybody calls him Buddy and says, would y'all be praying for Buddy? Buddy has cancer. He's dying. And, uh, and, and, and I don't know if he's saved or not. That Sunday school teacher took it upon himself to come to my pawpaw's door and visit with my pawpaw. And my pawpaw invited that Sunday school teacher in, and that Sunday school teacher laid out the gospel for my pawpaw. And in that moment, in that time, in that living room, that stranger who I've never met before in my life slew the giant, and my pawpaw prayed to receive Christ. God can put people in your life at the right moment, at the right time, to slay a giant you can't slay. God will provide. But can I just say, kind of to the side here real quickly, you may be that person God is preparing for somebody else's giant. Do not be dismissive of those small promptings to send a text message. Do not be dismissive of those small promptings to go stop by somebody's house just to check on them. Don't be dismissive of those small promptings in your life where God tells you to go pay for that person's meal. Don't be, don't be dismissive of those small promptings where, where God lays on your heart to, to call somebody up and just say, Hey, man, I was thinking of you today. Because that might be the very prompting that God is putting on your heart to come along somebody else to help them slay their giant. God raises up people to help slay giants. And then we see the promise of God. Listen. God does promise a victory. That's the good news. But we didn't come here to worship David. This isn't the church of David, is it? I didn't see that on the marquee outside. Did y'all see that? No, this is just Jesus Christ's church, right? But so what we need to understand is that David is the shadow in which Jesus is the substance. In other words, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. This is the very same place in which David resided. But in Matthew's genealogy, if you begin to read Matthew's genealogy, you see that Jesus came from Abraham, and eventually you see that he comes from David. It's all connected. David is the shadow in which Jesus is the substance. David was intended to be the shadow of the real giant killer, which is Jesus. And there is not a person in this room, I can promise you this, church, I can promise you this, Fairview, there is not a person in the room that's going to leave here today and fight a nine-foot-tall Philistine. Guarantee, if you did, come get your money back, okay? But I guarantee you, you're not going to fight a nine-foot-tall Philistine. But you are going to have to face the giants in which Jesus faced. And if David is the shadow and Jesus is substance, we need to see what kind of giants did Jesus face. Well, Jesus, when he was born, immediately faced a political giant, Herod the Great. We're going to have some political giants we're going to have to face. I don't know if you're aware of that. I've been watching news. seems like there's some pretty big political giants out there. When he started his earthly ministry, he went out into the wilderness, and he faced the giant we had to face all the time, Satan himself. He, fa- he faced him in one. When he was facing his crucifixion, he went into the garden, and he began to sweat great drops of blood because he was facing the giant of stress and anxiety. He says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it, but not my will, but thine will be done. And then one of his own Judas turned against him and betrayed him, the giant of betrayal. Then you see later that one of his own main people, Peter himself, 
took and forsook him, said, I don't know the man. That's the giant of denial. Time and time again, you see Jesus' life was battle after battle with giant after giant. He was brought before Annas and Caiaphas, and he was brought to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin took him to Pilate. Pilate sent him over to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate, and eventually he was put on a cross. And on that cross... He cries out and he faces that giant called death and he cries out and he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and he died. They took him off that cross. They put him in a borrowed tomb. And in that damp borrowed tomb is where he faced death face to face, that giant of death. And he slayed that giant and he overcome that giant, defeated, broke the chains of the giant and then left there holding keys to death, hell and the grave so that you and I can be overcomers of this world too. Remember what John 16 verse 33 says? He says, but be of good cheer. I have have overcome the world, I can say with confidence there's not going to be a single person in this room that will ever face a giant called a Philistine, but you will face the giant called death. And you may be late for every appointment in your life. You might have been late coming to church this morning. You might be late for the doctor appointment tomorrow, but you will not be late for your appointment with death. It is right on time every time. And when that ticket is punched and your time is up, you will have to stand before God. And I'm thankful I am thankful that when I die, I don't have to stand before God alone. And I don't have to try to mumble and argue my case on why I thought I was a good person. Because the reality is, I wasn't a good person. Nobody in this room was a good person. I'm glad I don't have to stand and try to persuade God that I kept the law perfectly. Because I didn't. I didn't keep his law perfectly. I'm thankful that I won't have to try to defend myself well by saying I'm, I was a good church member. And I was a faithful tither. And I was a good father. And I was a good husband. Because the reality is, I fall short in all that too. I'm thankful at the right hand of God will be the eternal son, Jesus Christ, still bearing the marks of Calvary. And he's going to look at the father. He's going to say, Father, do you see that boy right there? Andrew, he's going to say, yeah, I see Andrew. He says, well, Father, by my perfect living, I have covered his life. And by my perfect dying, I have covered his death. So he is mine by my perfect death and my perfect life. He is mine. I'm thankful I don't have to face that death of the giant by myself. But there's people in this room, people at Fairview, that if you was to die today, you'd be before that giant by yourself. And that should scare you. And that should worry you. It should worry you that there's a giant that every one of us is going to have to face, that giant of death. And even though God provides people to help you fight giants here on earth, that is one giant there's nobody in this room is going to be able to help you with. Your mama's not going to be able to help you. Just because your daddy was a preacher, that's not going to help you. Your mom might have been a saint. It doesn't matter. That's not going to help you. You could have been the most faithful church attender there ever was. Listen, coming to church makes you a Christian like me standing in a garage makes me a Ferrari. That's not how that works. The only thing that will keep you from facing that giant of death alone is Jesus Christ. And how do you know? How do you receive that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. A gift. Here's the thing about a gift. A gift is free. It has no conditions. If I wake up and you give me a brand new bicycle on my birthday, but then tell me I have to go work for it, you can keep the bicycle. All right? That's not a gift, right? Because it has a condition attached to it. A gift is free. And so here's God saying, I'm offering you the gift of salvation as Jesus Christ. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is there, it's for you. All you got to do is receive it. Raise your hand in this church. Raise your hand out there at Fairview if you are a whosoever. Anybody in here a whosoever? That should be every hand. 
I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're doing now. I don't care who you are, where you've been, or who you're related to. It doesn't matter. You are a whosoever, and salvation is free of charge to you as well. But even though it is free, it is not cheap. And so Jesus Christ slayed that giant of death for you. The enemy doesn't fight fair. And so what's going to happen is right now, some of you who are not saved and know you're not saved, your heart is pounding. Remember, I told you the enemy don't fight fair. Your heart is pounding. You know you're lost. You know you need to be saved. But that enemy is jumping up on your shoulder already beginning to whisper. Listen, you got time. You don't have to do it today. You have time. Listen, you're in the middle of the aisle. There's people all around you. You're going to have to squeeze by people. And it's going to be embarrassing. You don't want to do that right now. Look at that enemy. Tell him, shut up. Because the one thing he wants to do is distract you and destroy you. The enemy is no friend of yours.